I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And, of course, Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, everybody. And today we are being joined by the magic of long-distance communications from Japan with the author Sean Michael Wilson. He is the author of Bushido, The Soul of the Samurai. It is a graphic novel from the book by Inaza Nitobe, which I'm sure I've mangled. It is illustrated by Akiko Shimojima, and today we'll be hearing readings from that and talking, of course, to Sean. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Thank you very much. I think your pronunciation was fine, actually. Oh, that's good. Although, um, Nitobi is the family name, so we should say Nitobi rather than the other way around. Nitobi, okay. Um, Sean, uh, this is a, I should also mention this is a graphic novel, so some of our readings, which we'll hear later in the show, um, are largely around uh, Sean's uh, narration bubbles. We don't necessarily go into some of the dialogue because it's very difficult to, uh, in the medium of radio, to use pictures. Uh, but let's start this off. Uh, Sean, first of all, thanks so much. It's, what is it, like 2 in the morning over there? Yeah, it's 2 in the morning, but because of you, the uh, the American publishers I work with them, quite often up to this time in the morning anyway, so it's okay. Okay. Well, we really do appreciate you making time and speaking to us, uh, you know, for the next hour or so. First of all, can we just start off, how did you get interested in uh, retelling a book from 1900, 1905 into a graphic novel? Well, in this case, um, actually, it was the publisher who suggested it, Shambhala. Um, I've done uh, eight books with them now, and I think that was the the sixth or the seventh, I'm forgetting. And so sometimes I suggest the uh, the themes or the topics or the eras, and sometimes they suggest it to me. And so uh, normally what they do is they say, um, how about this one, Sean? First of all, are you interested in doing it? And secondly, is it suitable for a graphic novel or a comic book uh, rendition? And um, normally, uh, I would say almost everything is suitable. It's only a question of how to do it. So I have a little think about it, I research it, and then I kind of give them a little report about maybe how we can do it. And um, in this case, I think we, we chose a kind of a rather unusual, special way to do it. Sean, what brings a, a, a Scottish man to Japan? Uh, you, you study the culture there. Um, what what else are you doing over there? Are you, uh, are you teaching, or how did you end up in Japan? I guess is the the summation of the question. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I do I do some teaching as well. Yes, um, part time, but no, mostly I'm writing the comic books. And um, of course, Japan is the biggest, still the biggest comic book and manga industry in the world. I believe it, in order it's Japan, the USA, and then France in that order. And unfortunately, Britain, although Britain has a very long tradition in comic books, um, in terms of sales and industry, it's way, way down now on what it was. So this is a good place for me to be in terms of um, working in comic books. I think it went down when Jamie moved to the United States. Yeah, a, a conspicuous consumer of the dandy and the topper. Did you did you actually get involved in, in comic books in Scotland? Because you're, you're from Edinburgh, and one of the big comic book companies, of course, is based in D.C. That's D.C. Thompson. Did you do work for them or for Rebellion or any of the other British publishers? Uh, no, I haven't. Although, of course, I read D.C. Thompson comics when I was a kid, and uh, IPC was the, the company at the time when I was a kid for 2008. Um, so I grew up on those kind of things, and uh, as a Scottish person, Ur Willie, Ur William, of course, and the, and the Bruins, uh, Ur Willie and the Bruins, as we call it in Scotland, uh, was um, one of the first comic books which which I read. Of course, that's more like a, just a cartoon rather than a comic book. But these uh, things are a big influence on me, and they, and they still do. They're in my heart now. But um, no, I've never actually worked so far for any of the big remaining British companies because the kind of books I do are not really traditional comic books. 
they're, they're kind of more unusual, they're more about history and sociology and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And th- that brings me to my next question. So why Bushido um, in in this day and age? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Now, I know that your publisher suggested it, but let's let's talk about how it's relevant in this day and age. And in some ways, um, when I was reading it through, you know, these, these um, virtues that they discuss um, – for those of uh, for those of you tuning in, it's it's a and I'm going to sum this up and and you can help me if I have it wrong, but it's a it's a it's a series of codes that the samurai live by. I I think that's a safe summation, correct? Yes, uh, that's right. Well, the actual book itself has it was it have seventeen or eighteen chapters? I'm forgetting it. Uh, I have seventeen it right here. chapters, and so um, there are these seven virtues of of bushido. And those are in it, uh, roughly in order, but it goes uh, into ten other aspects as well. But um, this is based on 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 Nikobi's chapter guide, because um, uh, or the way he laid out the chapters. So I've stuck to that same uh, structure which he used in his original book from 1900 or, or 1905, depending on which version you're looking at, because there's two different versions of the book. Um, and uh, as I say, the, uh, the first thing is simply that Shambhala and the editor of Shambhala said, uh, how about we do this one next? Because we'd already done the 47 Ronin, and we'd done two books on Miyamoto Musashi, and we've done several... Uh, Book of six, Five Rings? Six books on... Uh, we've done actually six, six books on Japanese culture and two on Chinese culture. Hmm. And um, so simply, I... I of course, I knew about Nitobi already because he used to be on the 5,000 yen note in Japan. He's not on it anymore, so I used to see his face quite often. Um, and so I just researched it. And of course, all these things are interesting. Um, and my take on this kind of stuff is that um, two things. I always try to think, how can we do a good job in a visual format which is still keeping the intelligence and uh, keeping authentic to the original. So I'm, I always have those two kind of pillars in my mind, no matter what the book is. What I wanted to ask you, you know, normally in Japan with manga artwork, and, and I would say fairly that, that Akiko's artwork here is very manga influenced, is presented um, left to right instead of right to left. Was that a decision that was made by your American publisher to publish it in a more Western format? Uh, yes, because um, their main market, I mean, this is uh, a question of capitalism and uh, also of American habit. Um, the British habit is the same reading order, order of course. So um, although quite a lot of manga fans are used to reading in the Japanese order, um, Shambhala are not primarily a manga publisher, they're, they're a book publisher. And so when we did the first book with them, um, they thought, well, well, we'll do it in the Western reading order. Okay. So in this case, in this particular book, because Shambhala have commissioned it, we have, from the beginning, structured it to be read in the Western reading order. So there's no real problem. The problem for us comes later, maybe, that if we want to then do a Japanese version, and then we need to restructure it quite considerably for the Japanese version. But um, otherwise, there's no problem. We, we think about it, first of all, that it's going to be published in that Western reading order. All right. We uh, have some readings prepared, and as always, they're done for us by Shanna Van Volt, who is the voice of God here at Lumpen Radio. Today's music is prepared for us from International Anthem by Ben Lamar Gay and uh, Antelope, which is uh, Jamie Branch and Halado Negro. So we're going to hear an excerpt right now from uh, Shawn Michael Wilson's uh, adaptation of Bushido, and then we're going to be right back to talk with him a little more. Stick around. You're listening to I-94. One. Bushido as an ethical system. Chivalry is a flower just as indigenous to Japan as its emblem, the cherry blossom. It is not a dried-up specimen like some antique virtue preserved in a museum to our history. It is a living object of power and beauty among us, and if it can't be physically seen, it still scents the moral atmosphere and makes us aware that we are still under its potent spell. The conditions of society that brought it forth and nourished it have long disappeared. But just as far-off stars still continue to shed their rays upon us, so the light of chivalry, 
which was a child of feudalism, still illuminates our moral path. About the time that our feudalism was in its last days, Karl Marx, writing his Capital, called the attention of his readers to the advantage of studying the social and political institutions of feudalism in Japan, which he considered the only living form of it left in the world. I would likewise invite the Western historical and ethical student to the study of chivalry in present-day Japan. The Japanese word, which I have roughly rendered chivalry, is, in the original, more expressive than horsemanship. Bushido means literally military knight ways, the ways that fighting nobles should observe in their daily life as well as in their work, in a word, the precepts of knighthood. The use of the original term is also advisable for the reason that the teaching is so unique, resulting in a cast of mind and character so peculiar, so local to Japan, that some words have a resonance so expressive of national characteristics that the best of translators can do them little justice. Bushido is the code of moral principles that the knights were instructed to observe. It is not a written code. At best, it consists of a few maxims handed down from mouth to mouth or from the pen of some well-known warrior or savant. More frequently, it is a code unuttered and unwritten, possessing all the more powerful force of practical deed and of law written on the fleshly tablets of the heart. It was founded not on the creation of one mind or on the life of a single person. It was an organic growth of centuries. It perhaps fills the same position in the history of ethics that the English Constitution does in political history, yet it has nothing to compare with the Magna Carta or habeas corpus. True, early in the 17th century, military statutes were issued, but the 13 short articles were concerned mostly with marriages, castles, leagues, etc. Moral teaching was hardly touched upon. We can't point out any definite time and place and say, here is the beginning of Bushido. But, as it came to full fruition in the feudal age, its origin may be identified with that time. But feudalism itself had many threads, and Bushido shares its intricate nature. In England, feudalism probably dates from the Norman conquest of the 11th century. In Japan, its rise was simultaneous with the ascendancy of Yoritomo in the 12th century. However, just as we find elements of feudalism far before William the Conqueror, the germs of feudalism in Japan also existed long before this. In Japan, as in Europe, after feudalism was formally established, a professional class of warriors came into prominence. These were known as samurai, meaning guards or attendants, like the Old English Knight, connect, knight. A Cinco Japanese word, buki or bushi, fighting knights, was also in common use. They must originally have been a rough breed who made fighting their vocation. This class was recruited during a long period of constant warfare, from the manliest and the most adventurous. As the process of elimination went on, the timid and the feeble were sorted out, and only, quote, a rude race, all masculine, with brutish strength, in Emerson's phrase, survived to form families of samurai. But as their degree of honor, privilege, and responsibility increased, they felt the need for a common standard of behavior, especially since they belonged to different clans. Just as physicians limit competition among themselves by professional courtesy, just as lawyers sit in courts of honor, so must warriors possess some resort for final judgment on their misdemeanors. Perhaps we see the germ of morality and military virtues here, we smile, as if we have outgrown it, at the boyish desire of Tom Brown, who aimed, quote, to leave behind him the name of a fellow who never bullied a little boy or turned his back on a big one, end quote. Childhood begins life with these notions, and so does knighthood. But, as life grows larger and its relations many-sided, the early faith seeks support from a higher authority and more rational sources of justification and development. If military interests had operated alone, without higher moral support, the ideal of knights and samurai would have fallen far short of chivalry. And that was an excerpt from Shaw Michael Wilson's adaptation of Bushido, the Code of the Samurai. Today, our uh, readings are done by um, Shanna Van Volt and, of course, music from Ben Lamar Gay. Sean, we talked a little earlier about... Uh it wasn't so much a question of whether or not uh, Nitobe's book could be adapted, but the best way to do it. And uh, I wondered if you could talk about what you had to leave out or what was difficult to include in your adaptation. Well, the first um, the first thing about this, and it's not an easy thing for 
any writers that if you're taking something which is in this case 120 years old almost or 500 years or 1000 years old then the first thing is that the publisher normally wants the words to be modernized or the kind of words which we consider to be archaic now to be uh, changed into more modern versions and um, first of all I, that, I mean that's a kind of debatable point in itself already and uh, not one that I'm really keen on because I'm keen on kind of uh, showing the original warts and all and keeping it as close as possible to the authentic original text but I kind of understand that uh, most publishers think that that's going to put readers off um, and maybe especially if it's a, if it's very different from modern American English, and so the kind of first, that's the kind of first thing to think about is uh, to modernise the language without kind of losing the essence of what the original person was was trying to get, at. and of course that's not uh, necessarily an easy thing to do, and that's just the text. I haven't even mentioned the art yet. Well, I know Nitobe studied in the West. Did he do his own, own translation, or did someone, did a uh, British or American writer translate the original? Well, I believe that he wrote it um, himself uh, directly in English, although presumably someone uh, helped him with it because uh, he studied in he studied in America, um, in a couple of different places in America, in uh, I think in uh, Philadelphia, and where else? Baltimore. Uh, so uh, it seems like his English was good. Mm -hmm. I know that someone helped him with it. I have a question about Confucius and Mencius. Is that how you say his name? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure myself, actually. I, I've, been, I've been pronouncing it that way, but that may be the incorrect pronunciation. Well, but anyway, yeah. The, the reason I asked is we tend to slaughter uh, names in translation. But any rate, so this... I read a little bit about Confucius, and can you tell us a little bit about how Confucius and Mencius uh, influenced this book and, and what those principles were? Well, the interesting thing about that is that, um, of course, nowadays Japan and China have a uh, not particularly good relationship, uh, but uh, of course China has had a very significant influence on the development of, uh, of Japanese culture, and um, specifically uh, to, not just them, but also we can say uh, uh, Lao Tzu or Lo Shi, they pronounce it in Japanese, it's from the, the Tao Te Ching. And so several of those philosophers, uh, the ideas that they had, we can still see elements of that now today in Japan. And so what uh, what's interesting, you mentioned earlier about how this relates to uh, the contemporary scene. And I think that an interesting thing about this, although it's already more than 100 years ago, is we can quite clearly see specific elements of the way Japanese people are now in what Nitobi's uh, talking about. I mean, for instance, he talks about the idea of not complimenting your own family or not complimenting your own wife or your own son. And that's still a very common thing. So um, uh, there's what's surprising about this kind of thing is how much is still relevant. And also in the acceptance of gifts too, isn't that correct? There's a we would find that very alien here in the West. Yes, I mean there's a page there where I mean you told me obviously, um, having had a uh, experience of living in America, um, he's talking about contrasting the way gifts are given, and he says that it, of course in I think he specifically says America actually, but uh, the idea that this is a fantastic gift because you're a fantastic person, that's why I'm giving it to you. Whereas he presents the Japanese perspective, which is saying, you're a wonderful person and no gift can be good enough for you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of presenting it from the opposite way. And that's very much the way Japanese people are now. I mean, I've, I've experienced that myself countless times. The mm -hmm. Japanese people give you gifts and degrade the gift in order to kind of respect you kind of thing. I see. Now, the book, it, it strikes me, I mean, he was married to an American woman, Mary Patterson, uh, in from Philadelphia. 
Um, was this book originally intended to explain to the West the codes of the samurai in Japan, or was it intended for something to be read at home in Japan despite being read in English? Because they're, they're, they're two different things. You know, one is a uh, is trying to find an audience to explain a country, and the other is directing uh, a treatise about the country itself to the country of origin. Well, I think that he had in, in mind... Americans and probably Americans and British people especially, um, and um, or in Germans too, because I think he studied in Germany for a while. Uh, so, and and I'm I'm thinking that possibly the beginning of this, if we think about his personal life, was pro was possibly trying to explain himself and his culture to his wife Mary, as you said. So, I mean, then in 1891, I think it was. You imagine them courting and um, her explaining about American culture and him explaining about Japanese culture. I, I, I'm presuming that the origin of the book is in their private conversations and how they had to adjust to each other. And also in the way that he studied when he was in, in, in Philadelphia and Baltimore, etc. and Germany, he would presumably have had conversations with other uh, professors in those universities and being maybe a bit annoyed about the way that Japan was misunderstood. And I, and I can understand that because Japan is still very misunderstood. It's quite common that when Westerners come over to Japan, that they have almost the mirror opposite, the mirror opposite image of the way Japan really is. I'm going to go back to Confucius for a minute. Um, in the sources... Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, in the sources, yes, of, sources of Bushido in Chapter 2... Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to read a little part here. It says, A common proverb ridicules one who has only an intellectual knowledge of Confucius as a man ever studious but ignorant of analytics. A typical samurai calls a literary savant a book-smelling sot. Another compares learning to an ill-smelling vegetable that must be boiled and boiled before it is fit <laughs> for use. A man who has read little smells a little pedantic, and a man who has read much smells... Yet more so, but both alike are unpleasant. Now, is this just referring to uh, moderation? You um, you appear to have read that from uh, the original Bushido book. Correct. We changed it slightly in our in our, in our illustrated version. Yeah, that's which is an example of how I had to modernize it. In fact, that is the but original. Anyway, I, I know I know exactly the page you mean. Yes. Um, so, Sony, what did you ask about that? I'm just saying, is uh, were the samurai calling for just a, a moderation, kind of a, a middle middle ground when it comes to learning? Well, this I think this is a kind of um, troubling part and uh, a little bit annoying in a way because obviously I am a writer. I am the, the kind of person who focuses on learning and artistic and intellectual things. So it seems to be directly attacking that type of uh, behavior. But what I think was that um, it's, it's very complicated, not not was entirely admirable, but there's some elements in it which I think um, I can understand and agree with. It's maybe, from what I understand about this, the idea that maybe uh, there's a certain shallow knowledge and shallow learning of um, just a, the title of a professor or someone showing off about their learning. And we've all met professors and teachers who seem to, their main concern seems to be to show off about how, how smart they are, rather than really learn something. Yeah, my grandfather and used so to call it the difference between book smarts and street smarts. He, he always used to kind of degrade book smarts and, and upraise the virtue of street smarts, you know, knowing how to handle yourself in quote-unquote real life as opposed to just being buried in a, in a book. Well, I, w I wonder how much that is connected to I think maybe to a certain extent it probably is because it's probably a general human thing across all cultures that uh, some people who don't have a kind of formal education get kind of annoyed about that and want to kind of degrade formal education and say yeah in in real life I learned on the streets I went to the university of life etc <laughs> and part of that is to make themselves feel better of course it doesn't um, universities are not separate from life. This idea that there's an ivory tower, that, that's never been true. Universities are just as much a part of life 
as a, a, you know a, a factory making computers. So it's a silly, it's a kind of silly divide in a way. But I think in this case, specifically for Japan, um, what they were looking at is, I think, the idea of a kind of uh, well-rounded, developed person from deep within, rather than just a kind of shallow learning layered on top. And if we want to look at it in that way, it seems like quite an admirable uh, focus. Uh, but if you look at other elements, you were looking at chapter two there. If we look at uh, other elements, um, it kind of contradicts that point. So, I mean, if you if you've got the book there in front of you guys, if you uh, have a look at uh, chapter four, in that it talks about the warriors stopping on the way to battle and writing poems. Mm-hmm. Isn't that intellectual and artistic? <laughs> so it does some, in some way kind of contradict uh, itself. And I think we, what we keep in mind, of course, is that Notobi was only one man, was only one person. So some of the things he's written may be uh, slightly wrong or he's misunderstood or he hasn't quite worked out uh, the kind of um, ambiguous elements in his own understanding of Japan. We can't take everything he said as absolutely a gospel understanding of Japan. Well, with that, we're going to pause uh, to uh, pay homage to the folks that keep this station going, and we're going to hear another excerpt from uh, Shawn Michael Wilson's Bushido, The Soul of the Samurai. As I mentioned, it is out now from Shambhala Boulder. It is a graphic novel. It is an adaptation of a book from 1900. And so after these messages and after a little more uh, of this book, we'll be right back with more I-94. Stick around, everybody. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. 11. Self-control. On the one hand, samurai had the discipline of enduring without a groan, and on the other, the teaching of politeness. This requires us not to spoil the pleasure or serenity of another by showing our own sorrow or pain. These practices combined to encourage a stoical turn of mind. Stoicism then became the characteristic of a whole nation. Although our national manners and customs may seem hard-hearted to foreign observers, still we Japanese are really as susceptible to tender emotion as anyone under the sky. In a way, I think that we feel more than others since the very attempt to restrain our natural desire to express ourselves causes suffering. Imagine boys and girls brought up not to shed a tear or utter groan to relieve their feelings. And there is a physiological question whether such effort steals their nerves or makes them more sensitive. It was considered unmanly for a samurai to betray his emotions on his face. He shows no sign of joy or anger, was a phrase used in describing a strong character. The most natural of feelings were kept under control. A father could hug his son only at the expense of his dignity. A husband would not kiss his wife in the presence of other people. Calmness of behavior, composure of mind, should not be disturbed by passion of any kind. I remember when, during the late war with China, a regiment left a certain town and many people flocked to the station to bid farewell to the army. On this occasion, an American resident came along and expected to see loud demonstrations as the nation itself was highly excited and there were fathers, mothers, and sweethearts of the soldiers in the crowd. But the American was strangely disappointed. As the whistle blew and the train began to move, the hats of thousands of people were silently taken off and their heads bowed in reverential farewell. There was no waving of flags or handkerchiefs, no shouts and cheers, just a deep silence during which only an attentive ear could catch a few broken sobs. In domestic life, too, I know of a father who spent whole nights listening to the breathing of a sick child, standing behind the door to avoid being caught in such an act of parental weakness. I know of a mother who, on her deathbed, refrained from asking her son to come see her so that he would not be disturbed in his studies. When a man or woman feels his or her soul stirred, the first instinct is to quietly suppress it. This is in line with the third Christian commandment to not speak lightly of spiritual experience. It is drawing to Japanese ears to hear sacred words, the most secret feelings of the heart thrown out in promiscuous ways. A young samurai wrote in his diary, Do you feel the soil of your soul stirred with tender thoughts? It is time for seeds to sprout. 
Don't disturb it with speech. Let it work alone in quietness and secrecy. To talk too much about one's inmost thoughts and feelings is taken as an unmistakable sign that they are neither very profound nor sincere. And we are back here on I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen and Mr. Michael Sack. And today we are speaking with Sean Michael Wilson. He is the author of Bushido, The Soul of the Samurai. We're talking to him at, I believe, 2 or 3 in the morning from Japan. Uh, and we just heard an excerpt from uh, his graphic novel. And I should mention this is a graphic novel. So some of the uh, word balloon dialogue that we have in the book we were not able to reproduce because there's no pictures to go along with it and you wouldn't understand it. As always, our readings are done by Ms. Shanna Van Volt and today music is from International Anthem and it's Ben Lamar Gay. Sean, we just heard uh, an excerpt from your book, Chapter 11, on self-control. And it's interesting because the next chapter of this book goes into something that's been very controversial about uh, the idea of Bushido, which of course is ritual suicide and seppuku. And I wondered if we could talk uh, briefly just about that, whether that was uh, a difficult thing for you guys to, to put into place or what your feelings are on it in the modern world. Well, the... Uh I think in terms of uh, seppuku, of course, that's not uh, practiced in Japan anymore, obviously. Um, but if we, uh, the idea of this kind of uh, self-control and not showing uh, your emotions and um, yet feeling them deeply, I think that is still very much an element of Japan now. You often see that in Japanese dramas, that there's there's someone bursting with emotion inside of, of normally it's gratitude or a feeling of um, shame that they've let their family down. Uh, and um, it, those are kind of expressions of this uh, classic Japanese tendency, which Nitobi is talking about, which um, uh, has been an element of Japanese culture for hundreds of years. Now, in terms of showing seppuku, it's not it's not a troublesome thing for ourselves because we, we've showed it in almost all the Japanese books that we've done because it's normally an element of it. Um, and uh, the the only thing is that sometimes some publishers don't want it to be kind of very um, graphic in the way we present it. And then that ties back to what I said before, that we always try to uh, move between the two pillars of making an interesting visual ver version, but which is still authentic. I mean, obviously, seppuku was bloody and was horrible, so we don't want to show it in a way which makes it look like it was painless. Sean, I thought that chapter was, was just one example of, of several in the, in the book where um, things that are considered virtues in the, in the Japanese culture, or in Bushido culture at least, might be looked upon as cruel in, in Western culture, the treatment of women, treatment of the way children are raised, the way samurai training works. And uh, I, I wanted to relate it to a, a tiny little article that came out in, in this week's issue of The Economist. You know, it's, it's one of these little blue boxes in the, in the Asian section of The Economist, and it's, it's called Defending the Nail. I don't know who wrote it. They don't do too many bylines in The Economist, but I'm just going to read a few lines from it, and I, and I wanted to get your thoughts on how mm -hmm. it relates to the book and your experience in Japan. So the article starts out, Japan is a country of conformity. As the saying goes, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Uh, it goes on to say, um, talk about things like taxi cab drivers breaking rules of, of conformity to like facial hair restrictions and uh, them fighting back against the system. So it goes on to say, over the years, some bizarre but once common rules have disappeared, such as bans on drinking water during PE classes, which was thought <laughs> to induce stomach pain. But others have become stricter. The project to eliminate black school rules, an NGO, found that students are more likely to encounter strict rules on hair length, eyebrow styling, and the use of lip balm and sunscreen today than they were 10 years ago. It's no laughing matter. Annoying rules have been found to contribute to truancy, which is on the rise. Japan even has a word for suicide induced by onerous school rules, shidoshi. And it, it finishes up from there. But, I, you know, this idea of uh, Western ideology and morality impinging upon Japanese culture uh, is, is everywhere in the book. And I wanted to know what your thoughts on how it's viewed in Japan are. 
Well, Nutobius, as we said, um, is writing it from a slightly defensive point of view, although he does uh, try to balance his his concern or the way that he looks at it. Um, I think he, he felt maybe at that time that some Westerners were, were criticising Japan for being too rule-bound or that some of the rules appeared to be rather irrational. And um, again, that's that's one thing which we can still see now. Um, it's almost all uh, gaijin, as they say in Japan, uh, who come to Japan, uh, foreigners, get a little bit annoyed about the inflexibility of Japanese life. I'll give you just a very small example. Um, normally I take a bag with me when I go to the shop, you know, to try and be more ecological. And what I do is I always take it out and I put it on the counter in the 7-Eleven, for example. And 90% of the time, even though I've put the bag right in front of the person, the staff person reaches down to break, to, to get out a new, a new kind of polythene carrier bag. And it's they're kind of so structured to follow a certain type of way of doing things that even when the uh, different way is right in front of their eyes, it's often um, difficult for them to kind of step out of the structure. However, um, the thing is, Japan's a very complicated culture, of course, and a very, a very ancient culture. So um, we kind of need to try to understand more deeply rather than just criticise it as, uh, as outsiders. And if, if we look at the way that Natobi's doing it, he, I think he comes up with some pretty interesting um, defences of the way that Japan is. So, for instance, he says that looking at um, fashions in the 1890s and the 1900s in the USA and Britain and Germany, he's saying, is that a better way to be? That you're changing your fashion every 10, 20 years in this kind of flitting butterfly type way. So he's kind of contrasting the, what he saw as the weakness of, of Western way and saying that um, the thing about the Japanese uh, tight structures is that they have a certain gracefulness and a certain economy about them. But then he goes on to criticize it more and says that if, if these things are taken to extremes, it, it, it ends up in um, a kind of deadening of the person's intellect and, and the kind of militarism which we saw in the therapies in Japan, which Nitobi was very much against. So in the book, he does actually have a pretty good analysis of the good and bad parts of that. Now, uh, sorry to go on a little bit, but I was just in Thailand. I just came back from Thailand a few days ago, and I was teaching about comic books in there at a university there. And a Thai uh, lady who was interested in Japan said to me, how can you live in such a rule-bound culture? Now, um, it's interesting because, of course, Thailand's an, an Asian culture too, uh, generally speaking. Uh, but they have a much more flexible way of organizing themselves in a way which seems to a Japanese person to be a kind of horribly chaotic way. The way that they, um, they ride around with three or even four people on a scooter with no helmets, fast in and out of each thing. It's the kind of thing you never see in Japan. So as a kind of inter but this week myself, I've had a very interesting mix of kind of different Asian cultures. And this, uh, the thing is, um, what's good about Thailand is bad about Japan. But what's good about Japan is bad about Thailand. Is, um, which is better? I don't know. Who can judge? It's interesting because Natobi in his book uh, says pretty explicitly that Bushido is not just the code for the samurai, but the soul of the entire nation. And he goes on uh, to note that if um, the soul of Japan is easily uh, overshadowed by Westerners, if they lose the good things of uh the soul, the samurai, then they've lost uh, an integral part of themselves. He, he mentions it as the, the, uh, the, the, I believe the flowers of heaven flowed through the samurai, but they were also the roots of the nation itself. Uh, I may be misquoting, but that's, that's what I remember from your book. Um, is that still true that, the, that Bushido is an essential part of the modern Japanese culture, or is this something that is being over, uh, overwhelmed by Western influences? Hmm. This is an interesting thing to see. Um, in a way, it's a pity we don't have two or three hundred years because Nitobi could 
write another book for us now and contrast his own experiences. But um, I, um, I think, I imagine that, generally speaking, Japanese people do not speak about Bushido on a daily level. Uh, so I think it's the kind of thing which is, it, it is there and it is and it has influenced them. But it's the kind of thing which uh, is unconscious, which they're normally not aware of themselves. But that's, there's nothing strange about that. That's the same in, in Thailand as a, the way the Buddhism has influenced Thai culture. Generally speaking, if you ask a Thai person about it, they won't be able to come up with a clear, consciously thought out answer. And if you ask a, a Christian in Missouri or something, they won't be able to come up with a clear thought answer. Um, oh, normally, these kind of things in all cultures are unconscious influences which we haven't really analysed and understood ourselves. So I think that the, these things are still there in Japan, but it's not the kind of thing which Japanese people normally talk about with each other or with foreigners. That's fascinating that you said that. And when Jamie asked you that, I was thinking, you know, in the United States, you know, we're called a democracy and we have the Constitution, which is supposed to be, although it's not usually used that way. But when we're aware that we're a democracy, we're aware that we had these like bylaws that created, you know, that were in the founding of our country. But I mean, if you ask me off on the street to describe democracy to you, I would probably have a hard time to do it, even though I live in one. You're not up in the Federalist Papers? Jeremy? No, uh, yeah. Okay. Want to go get a cup of coffee, talk about the Bill of Rights? Yeah, so uh, what I'm saying, though, is, you know, people are probably influenced by these things, but you don't necessarily have a working definition, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, how many Americans, for instance, know the influence of the English philosopher John Locke on your constitution? Outside of high school, oh, probably well, not, yeah. Yeah. I don't so, I mean, the, think I and this is normal, right, in all cultures. Um, and, of course, basically this is a bad thing. It would be much better if we, all of us, from Thailand to America to Japan to Scotland, were more consciously aware of the kind of cultural influences. But in another way, it's kind of um, not entirely a negative thing. Because, after all, um, we have to get on with today, don't we? So... Uh, if we were continuously stuck in 1780 or, 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 or 1206 or whatever, we wouldn't be focusing on today so much. So to a certain extent, it's kind of um, a positive thing that we're, that we're not laden down with the knowledge of the past. Hmm. That's interesting because I think in so many of today's political discussions, too, we talk about people being stuck in the past. I'm thinking of certain members of our Supreme Court at the moment. Uh, but it is it is interesting because most Americans have no idea of the underpinnings of the things that went into the founding of the country, the writings of, of John Stuart Mill, of, of John Locke. Those things are taught to you in history class, I guess, uh, over here, but, but are quickly forgotten. Um, maybe that is what Natobi is talking about when he talks about the soul of the country is this legacy of it. Maybe he's, I, and I, I'm just supposing this, maybe what he was talking about was the idea of the samurai tends to be an animating force in modern Japanese life. Of course, he was writing this 100 years, 120 years ago, but to him, in modernity at that point, maybe he was looking back and saying, this idea, what we have, just as, as knights in England are an animating force for that country as well, maybe that is what it, we reference and that, that is some part of our soul. Well, if we, you mentioned them, um, uh, chapter 16, and in chapter 16, what it says is, where is the European philosopher or statesman or agitator who has remade Japan? And that's a good question because the answer to that is there isn't any key figure. Not, there's no really like Mao or Stalin or Hitler or anything like that that you can point to who came from outside of Japan and remade Japan. Of course, Perry came in from, from America and in the black ships and there were some significant... Um, British uh, people as well, like um, Thomas Glover um, from Scotland. Uh, but none of them you could really point to and say that they remade Japan. So the thing is, Japan did remake itself and, and borrowed on these kind of um, outside technological and um, systems and technology. But they, they remade themselves. But it, 
it's a fascinating question and one which I myself cannot give a definitive answer to is to how much of the things which Toby is talking about are still consciously understood now in Japan or were consciously understood at the time. Was he was writing at a time when Japan has was just coming into prominence uh, outside of its own area because mm -hmm. um, Japan had just recently won the war with China and about uh, a few years afterwards won the war with Russia right. which of course is a very very significant event of the first time an Asian country had really thoroughly beaten a European country and, and so he was writing at that time when Japan was just beginning to assert itself as a kind of uh, powerful force. And so the thing is, um, the kind of things he was talking about were quite recently changed at that time. Now, as you say, it's 120 years later, and um, uh, that, you might say, with the defeat of the Second World War, that that samurai, at least the military aspect of the samurai, was thoroughly defeated. And so since that time, Japan has thoroughly changed from the kind of Japan which Natobi would understand. But, as I say, there's, there's at least six or seven things which he mentions in the book, which I think we can very clearly see today here in Japan. Well, we've been talking with uh, Sean Michael Wilson. He has adapted Bushido, The Soul of the Samurai. It's a graphic novel. It's with Akiko Shimojima. Uh, Nitobi Inazo is the original author. Sean, thanks so much for joining us from Japan today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks Sean. Sean. We're going to close. Thank out, you. We're going to close out today's program with a final reading from uh, Sean's adaptation. Again, it's voiced by Shannon Van Volt. International Anthem provides the music. This is Antiloper. We'll see you all next week. From all of us at I-94, thanks so much for listening to Lumpen Radio. 14. The Training and Position of Women Women have sometimes been called the paragon of paradoxes because the intuitive working of their mind is beyond the comprehension of men's, quote, arithmetical understanding. The Chinese ideogram denoting the mysterious, the unknowable, consists of two parts, one meaning young and the other woman, because the physical charms and delicate thoughts of the fair sex are above the coarse mental nature of men. In the Bushido ideal of woman, however, there is little mystery and only seemingly a paradox. Ideographically, the Chinese represent wife by a woman holding a broom, certainly not to brandish it offensively or defensively against her partner, or for witchcraft, but for the more harmless uses. The idea involved being as homely as the etymological derivation of the English words wife, weaver, and daughter, duhitar, milkmaid. The Bushido ideal of womanhood was preeminently domestic. The seemingly contradictions, domesticity and Amazonian traits, are not inconsistent with the precepts of knighthood. Bushido being a teaching primarily intended for men, the virtues it prized in women were naturally far from being distinctly feminine. Bushido praised those women who most, quote, emancipated themselves from the frailty of their sex and displayed a heroic fortitude worthy of the strongest and bravest of men, unquote. Young girls were trained to repress their feelings, to harden their nerves, to manipulate weapons, especially the long-handled sword called the naginata, so as to be able to hold their own against unexpected odds. Yet the primary motive for exercises of this material character was not for use in the field. It was twofold, personal and domestic. A woman with no lord of her own formed her own bodyguard. With her weapon, she guarded her personal sanctity with as much zeal as her husband did his master's. The domestic use of her warlike training was in the education of her sons, as we shall see later. Fencing and similar exercises, if rarely of practical use, were a counterbalance to the otherwise passive habits of a woman. They could also be used in times of need. Girls, when they reached womanhood, were presented with dirks, kaiken, pocket knives, which might be used to attack the bosom of their assailants or, if needed, their own. The latter was very often the case. When a Japanese woman saw her chastity menaced, she did not wait for her father's dagger. Her own weapon always lay close by. It was a disgrace to her not to know the proper way in which to undertake self-destruction. For example, she must know the exact spot to cut in her throat. She must know how to tie her lower limbs together with a belt so that, whatever the agonies of death might be, her corpse would be found in the utmost modesty with the limbs properly composed. But masculinity was not the only ideal for a woman. 
The gentler graces of life, music, dancing, and literature were not neglected. Some of the finest verses in literature were expressions of feminine sentiments, and women played an important role in the history of Japanese Bell's letters. Dancing was taught for samurai girls, not just for geisha, to smooth the angularity of their movements. Music was to fill up the weary hours of their fathers and husbands. The ultimate object was purification of the heart, since no harmony of sound is attainable without the player's heart being in harmony with the self. Still, I understand the Persian prince who, when taken into a ballroom in London and asked to take part in the fun, bluntly remarked that in his country they had a particular type of girl for that kind of business. So, the accomplishments of the woman in old Japan were mainly intended for the home. She was taught to deny herself. Her life was not one of independence. If her presence is helpful, she stays on the stage with him, but if it hinders his work, she retires behind the curtain. If a youth becomes enamored of a maiden who returns his love, but she realizes his interest in her makes him forgetful of his duties, then she might disfigure herself in order to be less attractive. Adzuma, the ideal wife in the minds of samurai girls, finds herself loved by a man who, in order to win her affection, conspires against her husband. Pretending to join in the guilty plot, she manages in the dark to take her husband's place. Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Sean Michael Wilson, who adapted Inazo Nitobe's 1905 book Bushido into a graphic novel alongside illustrator Akiko Shimojima. That graphic novel, Bushida, The Soul of the Samurai, is out now from Shambhala Boulder Books. This episode originally aired on January 27, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, Show intro and promo voiced by David Green. Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.